You guys can go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, you can open up your Bibles to Romans 5 if you have them, or use your phones, or anything like that. We're going to jump in to that chapter in just a minute. But before we do, I want to talk to you guys just briefly about this idea of Advent. Um, it's something we associate with this season of the year, but it's not a word that we use in any other context at all. Uh, so what, what is Advent, and why, why should we, is it maybe helpful for us to focus on it here for a few weeks as we lead into Christmas? Well, Advent comes from a Latin word for a Greek word, parousia, right? And what parousia means is it means coming or arrival, but not just any arrival anywhere, right? Not like when I get home from work or things like that, right? It's, it's the arrival of an important person to an important place for an important reason. Think of like, you know, political leaders gathering at a summit to sort out big political matters or something like that, right? It's the kind of a coming that would involve a lot of preparation and it's kind of, it's momentous and important and significant, it matters. And it's a term that's used in scripture to describe the coming of Jesus, the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming. And when we understand what Perusia, what Advent is, it's about this this important coming and the preparation and, and everything and what it means. We could really say that all of scripture is Advent. All of scripture is Advent. All of scripture is preparing us preparing us and explaining to us the coming of Christ, what it means, who he is, what he's going to look like, what's he going to do. The Bible is not a collection of just random stories and bits and pieces and moral lessons. It is God's story of redemption, right? It's who is Christ and what has he done from beginning to end. So that is what we're going to be looking at as we have a series on Advent. We are going to be focusing in, zooming in on the person and work of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Christ has come? What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What are the implications of it? Right? And we can all probably give an answer to that. But I want us to go deeply into that because this is the most important thing in the world. Who is Christ and what has he done for you is the most important question in the world. And I'm hoping and I'm praying, as I've been studying and working on this, my, my longing is for you to get just a deeper clarity, right? And, and a deeper understanding and a richer understanding of just who Jesus is. Just how important and how significant his taking on flesh and coming to earth is. And why it is the most important thing in the world for you. Now, God does, gets us ready for this in Scripture in all sorts of different ways, right? There's, there's prophecies and things like that. But one of the ways, and the way I'm going to focus on these next few weeks, is through something called a type. A type. Now, what a type is, is it's a, a person, a place, or a thing that tells you something true about something that's to come, but not everything, right? It, it's a lesser, smaller, limited version but it kind of points you towards, gives you the outline. Sometimes they're called shadows of this greater reality to come. So that you start to kind of get the shape, right? You start to kind of understand what you should be looking for, what you should be expecting, right? It's a little bit, one of my friends used the idea of the, the picture on a menu, 
right? You're, you're looking at the menu and some of the food has picture, right? And you're like, okay, I get an idea of what this thing, you know, actually is. But is that the actual food, right? If you see the burrito, is that the, is that the same as getting the burrito on the plate? No, you have some idea about what this thing's probably going to look like, right? Or if, if it's like a fast food commercial, right? It's like, the op, it's like disappointing. The picture looks way better than the reality, right? But hopefully... You're at a place where the picture, you get the solidity, but when it comes out and you can smell it and you can see it, you can taste it, that's way better. And you don't need the picture anymore because the real thing has come. That's the idea of a type, right? It's this thing that gives you an idea of what you should be expect, what you should be looking for. Helps you understand the ultimate reality when it finally does show up. And this is important for us because we can easily miss Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate reality that all of Scripture is pointing us to. But we got to remember, Jesus was missed by most people when he was here because he didn't fit the expectation. Even though God gave them all these things to kind of help shape what they should be looking for, they had different expectations. They had a round hole, and so when a square peg came along that was Jesus, it didn't fit. They ignored him or hated him. Right? And, and we could end up doing the same thing. Right? We can end up taking the square peg of Jesus and taking the round hole of our expectations and trying to just pound him in there until we knock off the corners and turn him into something that he isn't actually at all. Right? We, end up, we end up with a Jesus that is not Jesus at all, but a figment of our imaginations. But the reality is we don't need the Jesus we want. We need Jesus as he is. So as we look deeply at these these various ways that God has prepared us, prepared the world for his son's entrance into it, what it's going to do is it's going to help clarify and, and refine and deepen our understanding of just who he is and just what he has come to do and what that means for us. Not the Jesus that the world caricatures, Not the Jesus that our flesh longs for and distorts, but Jesus as he is, the Jesus that we need. And so we're going to start today by looking at one type of Jesus that we see in Scripture, and it's the first one we find in Scripture, Adam. Let me read this passage to you guys from Romans 5, we're going to be verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace And the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification 
and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your revelation of yourself to us, that you do not leave us to wander around and to try to figure out how we navigate this world, how to make sense of you, what our relationship is with you on our own. But you've been clear, and you've given us so much to understand it. And Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts and give us ears to hear this morning what you have to say for your word, that you would... um, break down any misconceptions that we have and allow us to see Christ for who he really is and allow us to rejoice in and, and love what you have actually done, not maybe what we wish you had or want you to in our flesh and in our own expectations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 14 of this passage, Paul says directly that Adam is a type of Jesus in his incarnation. Right, so this whole idea of a type, like Paul just comes out and says it. He's like, this is what was going on. Adam, in, in some way, resembles Jesus. There's a way that he was pointing us forward, and there's something about Adam that helps us to understand what Jesus did when he came in his incarnation. And the entire passage goes back and forth, comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus, Adam and Jesus. And they're alike in some really significant and important ways, so much that we can properly and rightly say that Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam, the final Adam, right? And yet, there's a vital, huge difference between them. So much that we can say that, that the ultimate question in life is, which Adam are you connected to? Which Adam are you connected to? So let's first start by getting our head around the first Adam, right? And let's go back to Genesis and understand who Adam was, because that'll help us understand who Jesus is. As we go back to Genesis, we're going to kind of look at the first three chapters generally. We're not going to, I'm going to summarize some things and give you some references. You don't need to flip all over there. But to understand Adam, we actually have to understand some stuff culturally, right? And particularly, there's a background here of, of ancient Near East culture, and particularly political culture, that if we don't get it, we'll, we can miss some stuff. Um, when God reveals himself, he does it in, in ways that we can understand. He does it in, in human ways that make sense to us. John Calvin said he, God talks to us in baby talk, right? He comes down and talks to us on our level because he wants to be understood. He wants to reveal himself in a way that we can understand. And so while talking about politics in the ancient Near East seems really obscure to us, right? We're so far removed from that. And it sounds really weird. We've got to remember that when, when this was given, this was like the ordinary stuff of the day, right? This was like us talking about elections, right? We all know what that is. It's not weird to talk about elections. We all we participate in them. We know about them. We hear about them. It's just one of the mill stuff. So this stuff may seem a little like distant for us, but we've got to remember that's just because we're, you know, 4,000 years, 6,000, whatever, down in history, and in a totally different culture. So what we're trying to do is bridge that gap, because it's going to make a lot more sense of what we see taking place in in Genesis. And the key aspect of of this 
these ancient politics that we need to understand is treaties. Treaties. And we have treaties now. That's not anything new. But there was a unique kind of treaty that was used back in this day. Now, now back in these early days, right, this is before email. There's no phones. There's no telegrams. Like, this is a totally different culture. And because of this, you didn't have a lot of big, massive empires. You occasionally did, but even the big empires, by our standards and what we see today, are tiny. They're tiny. Because it's really unwieldy to try to control such a big area when you can't, with all the challenges of communication and everything. You don't know what's going on. You can't tell people what to do. So you had a lot of small little um, kind of governances, right? Guys who were in charge of a city in the surrounding areas, right? There were a lot of those. But if you're a small, tiny little local power, you're obviously, you're also very vulnerable, right? You're small, you don't have a lot of power. You're very vulnerable to somebody stronger coming in and getting you. So treaties were a huge way of kind of navigating that world. You've got lots of little tiny powers, and the way you get stronger if you're a little power is to make some friends and say, hey, if he comes and attacks me, you fight for me. If he comes and attacks you, I'll fight for you. So we can be buddies, right? And we'll take care of this. We're a lot stronger that way. And that's really how the ancient... Middle East functioned. And there were two kinds of treaties. One was called a, a parity treaty, is what we call it, but that's where two parties are equal, right? I'm in charge of a little city, you're in charge of a little city, we're on evil, equal playing fields, we get together, we negotiate terms, and we sign a contract, and there we go, we're all set. But there's another kind of treaty, and this is what is really important for us to get. And it was called a, a suzerain vassal treaty. Lots of weird words, right? But suzerain is just an, a word for a high power, like a high-level ruler. And a vassal is a term for a subordinate ruler. So this is not an equal playing field contract treaty, right? This is a, a treaty where the reigning power, the higher power, basically comes in and says, hey, I conquered you, or if you want my protection, this is what you're going to do. Like, these are the terms. I get to dictate them because I won or because I'm stronger. Right, so I come in and I say, hey, if you want my protection, this is how you're going to prove your loyalty to me. This is what you're going to do. And if you're loyal, I'll come and protect you when bad things happen. If you're not loyal, I'm going to do all these horrible things to you. And you know, they use really flashy, dramatic, graphic language to describe all these horrible things they're going to do to people. Right? But, so this is the treaty that was, it was used a lot. Right? If you conquered another country and you were going to put a new ruler in place, you say, okay. You get to rule, but these are the terms and stipulations, right? You have to do these things or else you're going to be in trouble. But if you do, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure nothing bad happens to you, right? So these, these treaties were huge in the ancient Near East, and they really kind of governed everything. And now, so when we look at Scripture, God, we constantly see God relating to humanity in the basis of covenants or treaties, right? These agreements where God is very clear about who he is, what he expects, and what the consequences are for obedience or disobedience. And God uses these as a tool to communicate with us in a way that we would understand. And this is so kind because it's clear. Like, God is very clear about what his expectations are of humanity, that's not the case in every religion. But our God is very clear. He's not trying to hide it or be coy. He's very clear. Um, this made me think about when I do marriage counseling or premarital counseling, how so many of the problems we run into are over expectations, 
right? Like one person has an expectation here, the other person's expectation is here, and they just think this is normal, and they think this is normal, and they're just missing each other, right? And it's a mess. God doesn't work like that, right? He's very, very clear. It's like, hey, I'm your God. This is what is expected of you. This is what it means if you obey. This is what it means if you don't obey, right? So I want to walk you guys through how we see this covenant at play in Genesis, right? So in Genesis in one, so the beginning of these contracts, they always started with a description of why the, the higher power, the stronger king who's getting to set the terms, why he's the stronger king, right? You see this in the Ten Commandments. When God gives the Israel the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? He said, hey, I delivered you, I saved you, so now I get to set the terms of the covenant, Right? Well, in Genesis, what we see here is God's establishing himself as the one in authority by describing himself creating everything. Right? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 describe God creating everything out of absolutely nothing. Right? There once was God and nothing else. And then by the sheer word of his power, he created the universe, the planets, everything that's in them, including us. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are establishing God's authority, God's right to dictate how we, as his creation, live. He's the creator, we're the creation. We are not on equal planes. So he's the one who gets to set the terms of how we live and how our relationship is going to function. Right? And then as we move on, towards the end of Genesis 2, we get the next aspect of a covenant, Right? Because we see that God appoints Adam as the lesser king, basically the ruler, uh, underneath God. And he does this by giving him these, these commands. And he told, he, in Genesis 2.15, we read this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Right? So basically God took Adam and said, hey, you are my, I'm making you the ruler of this world. Right? You're my under, under ruler. Here's your territory. This is, this is what you're going to do for me, right? And he sets him up as the head of the human race. This is big. He's in charge of the human race. He is the representative of the human race. And the next thing God lays out, he puts him in charge of everything, and then he tells him what this relationship is going to look like. He lays out the requirements that define what Adam's loyalty is going to look like, right? If you're going to be loyal to me, if you're going to prove yourself to be a loyal under ruler, this is what it's going to look like. This is Genesis 2.15 through 2.17, uh, 2, sorry. So he basically tells him to guard and tend the garden. Then he says, you can eat of all the trees, but not this one tree. Right? If you're going to prove yourself to be loyal to me, this is what you're going to do. You're going to guard, care for the garden. You're going to eat of all the trees except for this one. You're going to abstain from that as proof of your loyalty and allegiance to me. This is what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So at the tail end of that, we've got kind of the last really important aspect of this covenant, right? After laying out the requirements, there's now promises for obedience and punishments for disobedience, right? The punishment's very clear. The day you eat of this, the day you disobey, you will die, right? It's a capital offense to violate this covenant. Now, the promise for, of 
of blessing is a little bit more veiled, but it's tied to the tree of life that we know about, right? The tree of life that Adam and Eve ultimately get cut off of when they disobey. That is the promise of basically eternal blessing, right? If you obey, you get access to this tree, right? You get to eat of this. You get to live eternally in my blessing and my good favor if you obey. If you disobey, though, death comes. So this is the flow of this treaty, right? God establishes himself. I am your creator. I, get, I am the ruler and authority. This is how our relationship's going to work. You are going to be in charge of this place. And as, as what it looks like for you to be in charge of this place faithfully means for you to do these things. You're going to keep and tend the garden. You're not going to eat of this tree. And if you're faithful and if you obey, if you do what I've commanded you to do, you are going to receive my blessing, my protection, eternal bliss and favor with me. If you do not, you will die. That's this covenant. So let's talk about Adam's role, right? What, what Genesis 1 and 2 is talking about here is what Paul is building on there in Romans 5 when he's doing this back and forth, when he's talking about how Adam, this one man, brought death to all. He says it over and over and over again. What he's drawing out is the fact that Adam was the representative for the whole human race, right? He's, sometimes we call it the federal head of the human race. He acts for, decides for, not just himself, but for everybody who falls under his sway, everybody who's connected to him. Now, we don't use this language a lot, right? But we, this isn't unfamiliar to us, right? We, we see this in little ways all the time, right? Taxes, right? One of the ways you can file your taxes is as a head of household. If I file my taxes as a head of household, I file taxes for everybody in my family. I essentially, I act as the head of my family and I take you know, responsibility for all the financial stuff for that group of people. Right? I'm acting as a head in that instance. Right? Maybe a, a bigger way we see this is, for instance, when our, say when our country goes to war. Right? Do you decide if we go to war? Do I decide if we go to war? No. Right? It's supposed to be Congress. Right? That Congress is supposed to issue this declaration of war. They are our federal head. And when they say we are now at war with X country, you are all at war with that country if you're a citizen of this country. No matter how you feel about it, you can think it's dumb, you can think it's stupid, you can think it's wrong, but because you are joined, you are part of that unit that they are the head of, you are caught up in that decision. Does that make sense? You guys, you see how this works? So this is not, it's not something we talk about a lot, but it's something we, we see and it's, it's there, it's around. All right, one of the other ways this shows up in scripture is, and one of the ways it used to happen a lot back in the olden days, David and Goliath. Right? What happened with David and Goliath, right? Israel and the Philistines are going to war, right? You got the armies all there, and what do they decide to do? Instead of like, you know, having the armies do this big thing, they do this representative combat, right? You pick your best guy, we'll pick our best guy, they're going to represent each side, and whoever wins, the other side's going to you know, surrender, it saves a lot of lives, but it's this, that person who's going to go fight, Goliath for the Philistines, David for Israel, they're representing that whole nation. They're acting as that head. So that's this idea, right? And this passage, as it describes Adam, he had this role for all of humanity, right? As by virtue of being the first man and by virtue of God's covenant with him, that was a covenant not just with him, but it was with him for all of us. So all of those things, all those requirements, right, all those blessings or curses, they apply to us just the way they do in Adam. And we are dependent 
on how well he fulfills it or doesn't fulfill it, which we don't really like because we're really independent and we don't like to be answerable for other people's stuff. But this is the way that God designed it. All of us essentially at this point are totally dependent on what Adam's going to do with this covenant. So how does Adam do? Not good. This is the bad part of the story, right? Genesis 3 goes on to describe how Adam performs as our head, the decisions he makes, what he does. And we find him buying into Satan's lies about God and violating the covenant, right? By eating the fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good to eat. Wow, I really tongue tied on that one. By eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Now, have you guys ever read this account and felt like the whole thing is kind of like blown way out of proportion, right? They eat fruit, and it, like, it brings death to the whole world. Does it just like kind of feel at first glance like a little, a little much? Well, that's to me, initially, if I just take it on the surface. Death seems like a heavy penalty for eating fruit from the wrong bush. But understanding this covenant helps us understand why, right? That this isn't an overreaction, right? The, the context of the covenant lets us see that eating the tree was not just simply breaking the rules. It wasn't like getting a speeding ticket. If we think about it in this way, if we see it in this context, you know, like we, we, if we see it like that, we're going to miss the gravity and the weight of what actually happened there, right? In the context of this covenantal relationship with God, this, the way this relationship works, eating that fruit was not just eating the fruit. It was an act of treason, it was breaking this relationship. It was saying, yes, this is what we agreed on. I'm out. I don't want your protection. I do not want to be loyal to you anymore. It's an act of treason. It's not just a violation of the king's rule. It's an act of defiance and setting themselves up against him. It's a choice to spit on God's promise of everlasting blessing and instead to make a run at his throne. It is not just eating fruit. It is much, much deeper than that. And because he was our representative, because he is our representative, when he decided to break that covenant, he brought all of us into that rebellion. Right? He just took us to war against the God of the universe. Thought that was a good idea. And it doesn't matter if we think it's a bad idea. It doesn't matter if we think we would have done better if we were in charge. We weren't. And we are in him, and so now we are part and parcel to this rebellion. This is what Paul is driving home over and over again in Romans 5. Just listen to it. Romans 12, in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 17, For if because one man's trespass, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Over and over and over and over again. Paul will not let us out from under this. All right? If we are in Adam, we are part of this rebellion. And we're all in Adam. We are seen the same way as our representative head is. That's what it means to be in this kind of covenantal relationship. When God looks at us, he sees us the way he sees Adam. In rebellion and enmity with him. 
It's as if we ourselves ate the fruit and tried to usurp God's throne. Like I mentioned, the individualistic part of us doesn't like this, right? We are Western Americans. We like to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We like to stand on what we do and not on anybody else's merits, right? We want to stand on our own stuff. But the reality is that wouldn't do us any good either, right? We need to realize that, right? Even if we could get out from under Adam and get to like stand on our own, our own obedience, our own loyalty to God, it would go horribly for us. We would do no better. Time has borne out that that standing in our own merits, even if we're not accountable for Adam's failure, we would do no better at all. Paul even talks about it here. He says that in verse 20, now the law came to increase the trespass. In, In Romans 7, he talks about how as he sees laws, he sees these things that God prohibits, they don't make him want to do them less, they make him want to do it more, right? Our rebellious hearts see God's requirements of obedience and righteousness, not as opportunities to be loyal, but as opportunities for more rebellion. That's what we do, right? So this is not like the dog on Adam sermon, right? We are no better, right? But we have to understand Adam to really understand our plight. Even if we could get, escape him, we are still dead in our sins. The law doesn't lead us to more righteousness. It shows our sinful hearts new ways to rebel. Our hope is not in freeing ourselves from the first Adam to stand on our own before God. That will do us no good. Our repeated efforts at our own righteousness will ever fall short of the loyalty that God requires, of the perfect righteousness we need before him. And each sinful act that we commit day after day deepens our rebellion against our rightful Lord. If we don't see this, it's just so easy to minimize our sin. We can see it as just eating fruit. Oh, I just did this. You know, and we'll start to minimize what our sin deserves too. Eating fruit doesn't deserve death. Me doing this thing, that's, that's not that bad. It didn't hurt anybody. We start seeing ourselves as somebody who maybe deserves a fine, a slap on the wrist, probation, community service, right? Our sin gets smaller to the point where we think there's a cost we could absorb ourselves, right? That's why understanding Adam is so important because it drives home how, how deep our need is. There's nothing we can do to get ourselves out of this predicament of being an Adam. We need to more, do more than get out from under him, the Adam who failed us. We need someone who can stand in our place, someone who can do what Adam failed to do, Someone who can keep God's covenant and win the eternal blessing that God promised for obedience. You are not enough. We need a new Adam. And that new Adam is Jesus. Jesus came. Jesus took on flesh, became human to be a new Adam for us. To be a new head that we can be attached to. And this is beautiful when we understand that all that is wrapped up in this. Right? Jesus is just like Adam in the sense that, that he, he becomes human so that he can represent humanity. Right? He has to become man to do that. This is why there's an incarnation. The, um, the Chalcedonian Creed talks about the incarnation. And, and it says that Jesus became incarnate for us and for our salvation. That's the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus came in the flesh to deliver us. He had to be human so that he could be the head of humanity. 
Right? And this is unbelievable. Can you realize it? In this covenant, this disproportionate covenant where there's the, the higher power and the lower power, Jesus is the higher power. He has no obligations. He's in charge. And yet he lays that down and he takes on the obligations of the subservient party. He willingly lays down the authority of the higher power to take on the obligations of the lesser. Jesus stepped into the role that Adam had to keep God's requirements for the sake of his people. But get this, guys, okay? As Jesus stepped into this, he had it way more difficult than Adam did, right? There's no blank slate here. When Adam took on and was brought into this covenant, there, were, there was essentially this blank slate. There was no strikes. There was no rebellion at this point. The price for, for loyalty and obedience hadn't been won yet, but treason hadn't been committed either, right? Like, there's the real potential of being obedient and, and, and winning this prize. But when Jesus steps in and he takes on these obligations of this covenant, it's already been broken. We are all already damned to death and rightfully under the wrath of God for our treason. He stepped into a deficit. The promised sanctions and curses have already been adjudicated and dealt. So we need two things, right? We need somebody who can bear the curses that we've already earned for our treason, and we need to do somebody who keeps the original covenant, somebody who can actually be righteous, somebody who is actually loyal to God and merits the blessing. We need someone who can die and somebody who can be perfect. And Jesus came incarnate to do both things. As Jesus came and took on flesh to be tempted in every way like us, and as Hebrews says, yet without sin. He did what was required of Adam, but that Adam could not do. He was perfectly loyal to his father in every action, every thought, every word, every intent was perfectly loyal and obedient to God. He succeeded where Adam failed, where we fail all the time. And then he went to a cross. And he did not deserve to go to a cross. He's the only one who shouldn't die. The only one who did not deserve to die. And what he endured there was not his penalty. It was our penalty. Our penalty for our treason. He suffered the promised penalty that we deserve for breaking our covenant with God, even though he himself never did. That's why when Paul talks about Jesus here, when he contrasts him with, with Adam, when he contrasts the second Adam, he says, he's not merely the second Adam, he's the greater Adam. What's more impressive, to kill somebody or to bring the dead back to life? Lots of people can kill people. There's only one who can be, turn corpses into living souls. Jesus' victory is superior to Adam's failure. Jesus became human to satisfy God's demands on humanity. He absorbed the full weight of our failure, every bit of it. He took the entire curse, the full wrath of God on himself. That's what was going on on Calvary. And he accomplished the positive righteousness that we required. The punish, just taking the punishment's not enough. 
We still have to show up and stand before God with a record of perfect obedience. And even if Jesus dies for our past sin and resets the clock, that's not going to last. We need the thing paid in full. And Jesus does both. In his perfect life of righteousness and in his sacrificial death, he satisfied all the terms of the original covenant. It's complete. It's satisfied. And he initiated a new covenant, a totally different kind of covenant that we are now brought into by faith. And this new covenant is, it's, operates totally different than the first. That first covenant was a covenant of works. That covenant says, do this and live, fail and you die. It's so heavy, right? It's so heavy. It's a covenant of works. But this new covenant is a covenant of grace. In a covenant of grace, the covenant is not do this and live. The, the covenant of grace says, you will live because I have done this. Trust in what Christ has done and live. It's given, not earned. The original covenant demanded that we be perfectly, personally righteousness, righteous. But the new covenant gives us Jesus' perfect personal righteousness as if it were our very own. And not because we earn it, but just as a sheer gift of grace. This covenant breaks us free from the first failed Adam, not to do it on our own, not to give us a new set of works, right? That's not what Christianity is about, but to attach us to a new head, the final faithful Adam. It takes us out of this treasonous family that's at enmity with God and attaches us to him and the faithful family as beloved sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ himself. Because we are all going to stand before God and answer for our loyalty, for our obedience, for our righteousness or lack thereof. And we are all going to take that stand in Adam, either in the first Adam, on the basis of our own loyalty, on our own obedience, what we have performed, what we have done, or in the last Adam, Jesus, trusting in his perfect loyalty, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness in our stead, one or the other. It's binary. There's no C. Those are the two options we get. Christianity is not about our improvement. It's not about us reforming ourselves, getting better, doing better next time. Scripture points out that on our own, the more that we know what we ought to do, we don't get better, we get worse. There's no hope there, right? Jesus took on flesh not to show you how to be good, Right? The law does that already, and it did us no good. It just led us into deeper rebellion. Jesus came to be good for you. He is your substitute way before he's your example. Jesus as your example is damning, because none of you can live up to that. I can't live up to that. Jesus as your, as your substitute is freedom and liberty and grace and mercy and kindness. And that is who he is. Christianity is about finding and throwing yourself on the one who has done for you what you cannot do yourself. By being attached by faith to the one who takes on the full weight of your treason and with joy brings you into all the blessings that he has won by his work.